perfectly characteristic of Paul's writing. We find these two great areas of biblical truth brought together in this order. What God has done for us and how we are therefore to live. God's saving work always comes first. In fact, you might say that this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion, the order. What do I mean? Well, you see, other, other religions also teach that we shouldn't lie or that we shouldn't steal. What's the big difference, someone might ask? Well, the big difference is precisely that we do not regard that obedience as the price of our salvation, but as the living, outworking of it. All the other religions of the world and all corrupt forms of Christianity reverse this order of things. They tell us in one way or another that if we live the right life, then we will receive God's salvation. Now, this is not just my observation. Let me remind you very briefly of the analysis of Max Mueller, the late professor from Oxford. He, he writes, uh, quote, I, I may say that in my 40 years fulfilling my obligations as professor of Sanskrit, I have de dedicated myself to the study of the holy books of the East as much as any other person in the world. And I venture to say of this collection, what I have found to be the keynote, the one agreement of all these so-called holy books of the East, whether the Veda of the Brahmins or the Puran of the Shiva and the Vishnu, the Quran of the Muslims, the Zvesta of the Zoroastrians, the, the keynote, the one agreement which one sees throughout all of these is that they all teach that salvation must be purchased and the purchase price is one's own works and merit. Now, in our own holy book from the East, he says, our Bible, it is from beginning to end a protest against this doctrine. Now, good works are, to be sure, required in this holy book from the East, indeed demanded more emphatically than in any other of these holy books. But they are never the ransom price of the true disciple of Christ. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. End quote. How can we be made right with God? How can people like us do what's required to have eternal life? No matter how you ask that question, that is the great issue of your life, of human life. Compared to that, everything else is peanuts, detail. The Christian answer is triumphantly given to us again and again. Here it is in verse 4. Christ, who is our life. No other religion has an incarnation or a cross or an empty tomb, precisely because every other religion imagines that our human efforts will somehow, some way, be sufficient to earn us a kingdom in glory. Only Christians say so strongly, so forthrightly, that we are in fact dead in transgressions and sins and by nature children of wrath. And if we had to hope in what we've done, well then we are damned. But salvation is of the Lord. 
And he has done for us what we can ever, never do on our own. And now that we have received life and salvation in Jesus, having freely received it, we are to live that life that Paul goes on to describe here in the second half of this letter in the same dependence on the power of our Savior. Or as some of the older writers put it, we are to live from grace and salvation, not to grace and salvation. Uh, I make this point often enough, but I hope you don't think it's too obvious to need mention. The truth is the primary error of the human heart, the, the fundamental theory of all false religion, the nature of all great corruptions of the Christian faith is, is found in this order of things. They all get it exactly backward. This is what put Judaism at odds with her Messiah when he came. Their embrace of legalism. And that is what legalism is. Any theory of trying to work to life rather than from the life we've received. We must obey. We must serve. We must worship. But all of our service and obedience and worship is the result of God's gracious salvation, not the cause. It is the living of the life he has given, not unto life. These are the outworkings of what God is working in us. So we come now to chapter 3 and we ask, how then should someone live who's been given such a gift of life, eternal life by no one less than the living God, and redeemed at such a price as the very lifeblood of God the Son. How ought somebody to live who's been, li who's been loved with such a love? This is what Paul comes in chapter 3 to explain. Let me cover the first four verses under three headings. Holy power, heavenly mindedness, and hidden life. Is it warm in here? I know some of you guys, it gets a little warm, gets a little heavy, gets a little drowsy. You can uh, turn up the air conditioning if you need. What, how do you guys feel? Yeah, people are like, ooh. <laughs> All right, uh, so somebody who has the power, exercise the power while I talk about point one, holy power. <laughs> holy power. Verse one. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Okay, where are we again in this chapter? Okay, in the previous chapter, at the end of the previous chapter, Paul attacked all the legalistic foundations of false religion, the traditions of men. This man-made religion, don't eat, don't taste, don't touch, all these rules, he says, which are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You're never going to beat sin that way. It's only going to make There's no power in that, he's saying. But now here, as he begins this chapter, Paul, uh, well, he'll go on to tell us in a moment that we are, in fact, to put to death those sins that characterize our old and to put on those new qualities consistent with Christ's life. Now, how are we to put sin to death? In other words, um, if that other way has no power, just following those man-made rules, if there's no power in that, where does true, holy power come from? Well, 
I don't know how many times he could say it more in four verses. In four verses, he mentions Christ four times. Christ, who is our life, he says. Just as the branch draws its life from the vine, so we must live in constant dependence upon, united to, the Christ and the supernatural power of his risen life. Without me, he says, you can do nothing. This life that Paul is about to describe with all of its heart obligations of truth, of love, of purity, of power, of self-denial and steadfastness. This is all not our doing and our strength. It's not something that you are capable of. It's as much God's gift to you as God's work for salvation and forgiveness and our being seated with him in the heavenly realms. And all of our duty must rest on Christ and his power, first, last, always. And this is what's being emphasized here, um, our union with Christ. Let me very briefly review. Being raised with Christ. Remember, he said that back in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, how he has made you alive together with him in his resurrection. And you having died in verse 3, he, he's, remember he said back in the previous chapter, verse 20, about how you had uh, been crucified in him. Our old life is past. We have risen to new life, everlasting life, powerful life in Jesus, our, our union with Christ. So, you know, if I take a piece of paper and I put it in my Bible, what happens to my Bible happens to that piece of paper. I take this home, the paper goes home. I bring it back, the paper comes back. I drop my Bible, the paper drops. The paper is in the Bible, and the believer is in Jesus Christ. Our life is hidden in Christ. This is what has, in fact, happened to us. Therefore, the chapter begins. Or uh, the word therefore at the beginning of verse 1 is in some translations, like mine, slightly softened to then, but it's the same word. Since this is true, then, therefore, since you were raised with Christ, now, therefore, seek these things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. On the basis of what has happened, since that good news is true of you, therefore, this is how you're to live. Uh, let me explain. Walter Marshall is a man who's really only known for one thing, for a, a, a single book. He's known for a book that he called The Gospel Mystery, of sanctification, which you can still buy. It's in print, although, frankly, it's not an easy read, I'll tell you. Marshall was a 17th century English Puritan who struggled, mostly unsuccessfully in his younger days, against his besetting sins. He tried many things to try to get self-control and to conquer his sins and had little success. He also uh, struggled with depression, in part because he could not effect the changes in his life that he knew he was called to. Uh, finally, he humbled himself enough to tell his problem to his friends. He, he broke his heart first to Richard Baxter, known to many of you, I hope. And Baxter told him after listening to him that Marshall was just being too legal in his whole approach to the Christian life. Marshall, for you, it's all no, 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 no. Keep the law or else. That's not going to get you anywhere, he warned. And then Marshall talked to, uh, to Thomas Goodwin. And he was even more candid with Goodwin about his failures of self-control. And he told him his sins and his failure to rise above them. He mentioned certain sins in particular. And when he finished it all, Goodwin told Marshall, 
you've forgotten to mention the greatest of your sins. The sin of unbelief. If I could explain it this way, what he was saying. You were trying to obey Colossians chapter 3 and 4. Without believing Colossians chapter 1 and 2. You were ignoring the great love and power and work and purposes of God. You simply don't believe them. Not in your case. The master sin, he said, from which all of your sins are coming, lies in a heart, lies in your heart undetected and unchallenged. Marshall was struck and he knew it was true and it changed his life. He knew that he had, in fact, been seeking to live as a Christian all in his own strength and by the power of raw law and with a heart that was only saying no, no, no and never yes to Jesus. Marshall's heart was not a heart of faith, not yet. It was simply not a heart captivated by the gospel, devoted to Jesus Christ. And it was this discovery that led to Marshall's change of life and his, his book. And on the, on the back of your bulletin, I, I put a couple of the chapter titles down for you so you get a sense of what, of what his new discovery was. We must first receive the comforts of the gospel that we may perform the duties of the law. That we may, by gospel comforts, perform the duties of the law. We must get assurance that in, the very in that very faith whereby we receive Christ. Diligently use faith for performance of the duties of the law by walking no longer according to your old state principles or means of practice, but only according to that new state that you receive by faith and its principles and means of practice. He's, he realized, look, you can't, you can't live the Christian life on worldly and legalistic principles. That's what Paul was warning about even in the previous chapter. You have to remember there is no power except in Christ. This holy power that comes by, through him and his spirit as he'll go on to say. Now, do you realize that Paul has to remind the people of that just like I have to remind you of that? I mean, that one reason that we have to come here every Lord's Day in worship is not just to glorify God, but also just to be reminded of the things we might otherwise forget. And this is one of the things that we are doing in worship, whether we're singing psalms or reading scripture or hearing the word of God. Even my sermons are often not the things which you don't know, but things designed to remind you of the things that you already know, but you are prone to forget. How much of Christian worship, including even this Lord's Supper that we are about to enjoy, is in remembrance of Christ, to fix in believers' minds again and again and again, that to live is Christ. To live this new life, we need, we absolutely need, point one, holy power. Holy Spirit power in Jesus. We need to believe this good news, and then we'll be able, we need to believe chapters 1 and 2, and then, therefore, we will be able to come to chapter 3. So that's the bridge, my first point. Holy power. Second, 
we have here heavenly mindedness. Heavenly mindedness. Into verse 1, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Not on things of the earth. Uh, what does he mean? That we should just neglect our jobs, our studies, our husbands or wives or children? Oh, no, 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 no. In fact, he's about to tell us about such things in this very chapter. That's not what he means by earthly things. Um, it's a moral or spiritual contrast, which you can see as he opens it up starting in verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Same phrase. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, so forth. We are not to uh, set our minds on such things, but to set our minds on higher things, the things of heaven where Christ is, the, the great, good, glorious things, the things of Jesus, his love, his salvation, his lordship, his teaching, his life, his coming again, his glory. His uh, reference here especially is to Christ who's sitting at the right hand of God. Reference to the we just sung. Why does he say that? Why does he bring it up here? What does that refer to? No, many wonderful things, but let me just give you three. Let me just give you three that you might be heavenly minded in this way, to set your mind on such things where Christ is at the right hand of God. That sitting at the right hand refers to Christ, of course, his supreme power. We just prayed from Ephesians. Did you notice? That the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's a word of power. And that should greatly change your life and your decisions. Knowing that your Savior, who loves you, has all power in heaven and earth, there he is, at the right hand of God. That power is for you. You're anxious and you're concerned, but God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And what on heaven and earth could separate you from his love? Because this is a phrase of, first, supreme power. Supreme power at God's right hand. Second, being seated at God's right hand, refers to Christ's sufficient pardon. Sufficient pardon. You also heard earlier this morning from the book of Hebrews how Christ was upholding all things by the word of his power. And when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Even clearer, a little later on, we read, This man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. It's a way to say, He has finished His work of putting away your sins. He has put them away, your sins, once and for all. The enemy of your souls has nothing by which he is able to accuse you. You are set free. Lift up your head. Whatever your past sins, 
whatever your present struggles, whatever your future failings, Jesus knew them all, and that's why he came and died and rose and sat down on the right hand of the Most High. He has finished his work, and you are therefore not to be beaten down in yourself, but to continue to press on, no matter how present you're failing, to press on in the full confidence and assurance that the sacrifice, the entire sacrifice of your sins, now appears for you at the very right hand of God in His presence. You have a sufficient pardon. Third, thinking of Christ at the right hand of God, setting our mind up there, we find that the fact that Christ is now sitting there means that we have His sympathetic prayers. Sympathetic prayers. Despite all of our present sufferings, as we read in the blessed chapter Romans 8, that Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, also makes intercession for us. Compare what we read in Hebrews. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Higher than the heavens, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Sympathetic prayers. Again, you have concerns. You feel intimidated to live as a Christian in the world. You need help. You know what? I tell you, if you could hear in the very next room, Jesus praying for you. If you could overhear in the next room, Jesus himself interceding for you, you would take heart, wouldn't you? You would be bold. Well, friends, much better than the next room. No, I tell you, before the very presence and throne of God. There, He always lives to make intercession for you, interceding for you with His sympathetic prayers. And the Hebrews, therefore, says we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but one who is at all point tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, so... Setting your mind on things above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Well, here are just a few of the ways that we can draw strength from being heavenly minded. Oh, we are intimidated. We're fearful. But you share in his supreme power. We, we, we feel discouraged, uh, guilt-ridden, and beaten down. You have his sufficient pardon. We don't know how we're going to make it even tomorrow. You have his sympathetic prayers. You go boldly to the throne of grace. You set your mind on things of above. Frankly, you stop listening to yourself and you start thinking again of where he is for you. And it will turn things around. Now, this is the idea. Setting your mind on things above. And as I'll be saying next week, our minds are far too full of lesser things, other things, unworthy, sinful things even that steal our joy, our strength, our confidence, especially our communion with Christ. But the form of both of these commands here, uh, it's a Greek present continuous typically, keep seeking the things above. Keep setting your mind on things above. Uh, this continuous force. You know, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Make Christ, therefore, your constant pursuit.
That is heavenly mindedness and why it makes the difference. Um, okay, so we've considered the holy power as you're about to enter into a new section of the letter, which you're never going to be able to do without his holy power through his spirit. Second, we've considered heavenly mindedness, how we can't go on without forgetting and forget all these things. No, no, no. We constantly need to be remembering Christ above and setting our minds on those heavenly things. Third, in this passage, we are taught that we are living a hidden life. A hidden life. Verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That little phrase, uh, your life is hidden with Christ in God, is just one of those wonderful phrases that you could just meditate on for an hour, right? I mean, it's just, it should be pondered by Christians. Paul is compressing so much meaning in that phrase. I could have a series of sermons on that phrase. Maybe I'll do that right now. No, I won't. I won't. But how often he reminds of, of, this, of this central truth. Christ, verse 4, who is our life. Uh, Philippians 1, it is no longer I who live, but Christ is in me. Uh, to live is Christ. Uh, so forth, uh, Galatians 2.20, got it backward. These phrases summarize the glory of our union with Jesus, which is another sermon on its own. But what's all this now about our life being hidden, hidden with Christ? Well, some, some people point out rightly that various psalms speak about us taking refuge in God and being hidden in the secret place, Psalm 31, Psalm 27 that we sing. Uh, that's all good, and it's true. Um, if, we're, if our life's hidden with Christ in God, then we're safe there. That's true, and it may be part of his meaning, but reading in context the sentence, Paul, here in the passage, contrasts our present hiddenness with our future appearing in glory. The present hiddenness and the future appearing in glory with Christ. Let me read it just once more. I want you to understand the meaning. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The glorious new life in Christ that you have already received in him that is yours is not observable to others in the world. Your, your true nature is yet hidden from view. It will be revealed, but not yet. And of course, remember, Christ's own greatness and glory was hidden in God from the people of this world as well, right? This world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. In their blindness, they couldn't see the divine majesty. Rather, they accused him, as a matter of fact, of being a glutton and a drunkard and a transgressor of the law of Moses and a Sabbath breaker and so forth, as we read this morning. Although he lived perfectly in communion with his heavenly Father and in perfect obedience to his commands, people were blind, blind to meekness, love, humility, faithfulness, incarnate. He was God, but his glory was hidden 
And you, you would expect that the Son of God would have had greater glory in this world, but it was not so. There was nothing in him to cause men to marvel. And many people were blind to it. Well, how much more so for us, the children of God in him? In fact, we ourselves struggle to appreciate the astonishing thing that has happened to us because the very life of God in us is still hidden. I mean, not just a matter of the heart, though it is that. It's, it still remains such a mixed experience. And that's such a humbling thing. We live with this mixture. On the one hand, of, of a true change of heart and life in Christ, which has made a profound difference. Sure has in my life a total difference. And yet, on the other, you and I, I sometimes act just as petty, just as worldly, just as self-satisfied, as proud, as cold, and as faithless as the people in the world around us who don't even know Jesus. This hiddenness of the divine life not just hidden from view, in so many ways still, still hidden from us, means that we are living every day with real disappointment and confusion. That we have the life of God. Astounding, remarkable, breathtaking. We have everlasting life. We're children of God. What joy. Meanwhile, brothers and sisters, the more you appreciate what the Lord has done for you, the, the more you appreciate that, I say, the more you will mourn. Both in scripture and in history, the godliest men and women invariably are those who are the most troubled about their own hearts and the unsteadiness of their whole lives. I mean, Christ has made a profound change. Joy! But, but they were not the men and women that they were saved to be. Sorrow. They were not the men and women that they struggled to be having our very partial success of our Christian lives in the world, it's, it's still hidden. They longed to see more, having tasted the divine lives in themselves. And it's a profound burden to be a Christian because you have a nature that makes you long for things, makes you want things that you yourself yet cannot have. But then there is this promise that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also be with him in glory. Just thought about this other verse, 1 John 3. Um, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, we're children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's our hope. We're, we're caught between the past and the future. Oh, the apostle told us last chapter, even here at the beginning, to remind us we have died to who we were. We have died Christ's death to the life that we 
lived by nature. We are united to Jesus Christ in his resurrection and have greatly and mightily risen to newness of life. Glory to God. We are united in his resurrection and his death, but yet. We are not what we ought to be. We are not what we will be. We live in the prospect of what's still to come. And this is what we must remember. Christ's work behind us. Christ's glory before us. These are the principles that must be ours every day. Telling ourselves, reminding ourselves again of the already, the not yet. Risen with Christ. Living in Christ. Appearing with Christ one day in glory. Christ in our past. Christ in our present. Christ in our future. Christ behind me. Christ above me. Christ before me. This is how the Christian life is to be lived and must be lived because it's hidden with Christ in God. So today, dear brothers and sisters, we are separated from Christ in the sense that he's in heaven and we're on earth. There's a Christ that we cannot see just as a blind man is in a way separated from the world to which he is in every way belonging. But as we engage our hearts, as we are setting our minds upon Christ and all that he has done and all that he is and all that he will do, we can then live in his strength and his righteousness and his fullness only that every day his grace is sufficient and that until that great and glorious day when we will appear as he is our life is hidden with Christ in God these are the three things that I wanted to bring you from the passage brothers and sisters the holy power the heavenly mindedness and third and finally the what was it again? Help me out here. Somebody who's taking notes. The hidden life that we have in Christ. Thank you. Struggled this morning to put three H's together as I needed points that you could remember. Then I couldn't remember them. So in conclusion, uh, years ago, um, certain plastic surgeon uh, noticed some interesting things about the people whose faces that he operated on. For some, he, he found that the operation resulted in, in immediate and lasting changes, not just in their appearance, of course, but in their, in their personalities. They, they became new people, people who had been embarrassed about some disfigurement, then became confident and outgoing after their problem was fixed. Strangely, though, on the other hand, in spite of successful surgeries, there were others who insisted that the surgery made no difference at all. And, and the doctor was perplexed. He, he would show them before and after photos. But the people still insisted, sometimes angrily, that they, were the they looked the same. Their faces were no different. They refused to believe the truth and went on living just as they had before, dominated by the thoughts of their previous disfigurement, which no longer existed. 
their lives were not changed because for whatever reason they did not believe the truth about the change that had taken place in them. Well, as Christians, of course, we've been given a lot more than a facelift. We've died to our old lives. We've been raised to new life in Jesus. Christ is our life, though sometimes it is hard for even us to see. And that's why we must keep setting our minds on things above, keep seeking Christ where our true life is hidden in God. And this will mean, as he goes on to say in this chapter, living with an eternal perspective rather than a worldly one, avoiding the sins that used to characterize our old self, putting on the new self that's constantly being renewed in the image of Jesus, living in love, joy, peace, the confidence of our God, and so forth. It means letting the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts. It means doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father through him. Heavenly-mindedness, you see, it's not escapism. It's not indifference to this world. Oh, dear friends, heavenly-mindedness is a full and faithful and fruitful response to God's great grace in calling upon you in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we do pray that uh, we might more and more live this heavenly life where Christ is. How often we must uh, humbly confess to you, Father, the, the profound weakness of our flesh, the ways in which we neglect our power, that we hide that life even from ourselves, the way that our heavenly mindness has turned to earthly mindedness and has left us weak, sore, sorry, ashamed, afraid. You have called us to something so much greater and something more in Jesus. And once again in him, we receive what is ours by birth, by new birth in him. May that birthright be all the more powerful now in our lives, having refreshed our souls, our minds. We set them that we might keep setting them on Christ. Seated at your right hand. May Christ, who is our life, give, him the, give us the hope of glory. Father, for any who are trying to live some kind of religious life in their own strength, in their own way, to their own pride or false expectation, we pray that these very truths of the great gift of salvation in Jesus might make them throw away such vain confidence today and receive with, with wonder and joy that free gift of salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, may he be their joy too.